Our text this evening is First uh, Kings chapter 12, and if it's all right with you, we will read the entire chapter uh, throughout the sermon, but at the beginning we're just going to read the first 15 verses, okay? It's, just, it's a lot to take in. But let me give you a quick recap before I have you stand for the reading of the uh, first 15 verses. I'll give you a recap of what's been going on in the book of Kings. Uh, at this uh, point in history, uh, Solomon dies at the end of chapter 11, and in the latter years of his life, he has rebelled against the Lord, he has turned from his wisdom into foolishness, and he's laid a heavy burden upon the shoulders of the people of Israel. And God uh, tells him through uh, a prophet that he uh, will have part of his kingdom taken away from his uh, household and given to another man, Jeroboam. And that paints quite the target on Jeroboam's back, and he flees for his life to Egypt. And then at the end of the chapter, chapter 11, Solomon uh, dies. He's buried with his uh, fathers in the city of David, that's Bethlehem, and Rehoboam becomes king in his place. So that's kind of where we are in redemptive history. And so if you'll stand with me now as we read God's word, starting in 1 Kings Chapter 12, verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father, and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, and come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father, while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today, and serve them, and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and, and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus you shall speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day. As the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated and I'll pray for us. Father, 
Father, in the name of Jesus, with the help of the Holy Spirit, may we feast upon your word. As we observe this story of two bad kings, use it to stir up in our hearts a greater longing for Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We ask this for our good and for your glory. Amen. Lord Acton, who is better, sometimes better known as the magistrate of history, once said that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, amongst other books, once said that the most improper job of any man, even saints, is bossing other men. Not one in a million is fit for it, and least of all those who seek the opportunity. And H.L. Mencken, who was a contemporary of J. Gresham Machen, they never met, and, and Mencken was certainly not a Christian, but he, was a, he admired Machen and even wrote an obituary for him that was mostly flattering. But elsewhere, Mencken once said, as democracy is perfected, the office of president represents more and more closely the inner soul of the people. On some great and glorious day, the plain folks of the land will reach their heart's desire, and at last, in the White House, will be adorned by a downright fool. Here's what these three men are basically saying collectively. Humanity is prone to tyranny. We ourselves are prone to become tyrants. We are prone to fall under the tyranny of others, and even when we get to pick our own kings, we're bad at it. And I think this passage, 1 Kings chapter 12, that we have before us this evening, illustrates the same sad reality. In our fallen, rebellious, sinful condition, humanity is prone to tyranny. We ourselves are prone to become tyrants when we get just a little bit of power. We're prone to fall under the tyranny of others, and even when we get to pick our own rulers, we can be very bad at it. Let's observe this story starting with Rehoboam and the verses that we just uh, read. This is the king who enslaved his people in labor. What you see in the story is actually two kings that enslave their people. Rehoboam's choice of enslavement is with heavy labor. Solomon had placed a, a huge burden upon the people. And they come to the new king, ready to make him king, and they plea with him to lighten their burden. And he was foolish. If you could say only two things about Rehoboam in these verses, it's that he was foolish and that he was a tyrant. He used fear to crush people into obedience. He abandoned the wisdom of the older older council members that had served as advisors to his father. This is a, a good reminder to us as the church of the potential consequences of isolating different generations within the church. Young men, you need the good wisdom and discernment and knowledge available to you through the older men in this church. And same for you young women. You need the the, the good wisdom and counsel, the the experience of living a godly life available to you in the the older women in the church that have followed Jesus faithfully for a long time. Here this young man is, and he abandons the wisdom of these godly men and chooses the foolishness of his peers. I can, I can recount being in youth ministry in high school and in college ministry and as, as good a friends as I made in those contexts. I, we only had so much wisdom, and we were desperate for the wisdom of older men in the church. And I'm, I'm glad that many of us found it in our fathers and our uncles and in other men. So he gets wisdom for but a minute. They tell him, look, if you will speak good words and you'll be kind to them, if you'll alleviate the burden placed upon them by your father, if you'll serve this people in this way, they will serve you forever. 
They're telling them, look, you have this one opportunity, this chance to win the hearts of your people, and they will serve you faithfully. And that wisdom, that advice goes in one ear and right out the other. He has three whole days to reconsider this bad decision. Instead of reconsidering, he takes in the counsel of these younger men. And not only does he choose tyranny, not only does he choose to use fear, the the threat of, of not disciplining them with whips, but something worse, scorpions, not only does he not reject that foolishness, but he doesn't even have the wisdom to filter out the vulgarity of his peers. There's a euphemism here. I'll let you, you know, think of it for yourself later. They say, thus shall you say to them, you know, talking to their friend, the new king, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. He doesn't even have the godliness and the wisdom to filter out such vulgarity. And his tyranny has consequences. He comes and he answers the, the people, look, it's, I'm not going to do what you want. In fact, it's going to get worse now. So get in line. And if you don't, I'll punish you with scorpions, whereas my father only disciplined you with whips. Now, the one comfort that we have from this passage towards the end of this section that we read earlier is that the reason that the king did not listen to the people was that this was a turn of affairs, as the ESV says. It was brought about by the Lord so that his word could be fulfilled. There's a little bit of comfort for us there in the midst of this darkness, and that is that God's word comes to pass. God fulfills his word. God is not morally responsible for this evil here, but he's sovereign over it. He's sovereign even over the secondary causes in his creation. Secondary causes like this king. God had made a promise that he would uh, rip part, a majority of the kingdom away from Rehoboam's uh, father, the, the household of David, and that is indeed coming to pass. And so as, as sad as it is to see God's word of judgment coming to pass, we should be reminded that the other side of that coin is that when God uh, declares something, when he declares promises and blessings, that also will come to pass. God's different than us. I was just telling my congregation this morning as we were going through the gospel of Mark, uh, God is different than us. I can say something. Just the other night I said to my wife, yes, I will pick up oat milk on the way home. It did not happen. I had every intention of it happening. I really did. But I got home, had to turn around and go back to the food lion down the street and get some oat milk. Right? It's probably happened to several of you before. When God says, he, you know, he's not going to the store getting oat milk, but if he said that he would do it, it's done. It's as good as done for God to speak as for it to come to pass. And so when God uh, makes declarations of judgment upon people, it will come to pass. But when he gives us promises of blessing, that will also come to pass. So there's a little bit of hope, even in the midst of all of this darkness. So how does this foolish tyranny, this plan of oppression, work out for Rehoboam? Well, not good. Let's read verses 15 through 24. I'm going to reread verse 15, and we'll cover the next few verses together. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster, over the forced labor 
And all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against the house of Israel, to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people. Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. Now, before we discuss the consequences of Rehoboam's plan of oppression and, and foolish tyranny, one thing that's important to note out, uh, I think especially because I see a, a lot of men in here that are uh, fathers, I have, I have two boys uh, at home. I have a, a three-and-a-half-year-old and a, a nine-month-old. And, uh, and, and they're both named after prophets in the Bible, Ezekiel and uh, Micah. And uh, we're going to try to encourage Ezekiel to not make fun of his little brother that he's a minor prophet when they get older. Uh, we'll see how it goes. But I think it's important to remember as fathers and grandfathers that sometimes what we sow is not just reaped in our life, but in the life of our sons and grandsons. If you read the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel together, it's this one cohesive book, just like First and Second Kings are, and, and you get to this part where it's describing David's administration early on in his life. And it says something really good about David, that he's ruling with justice and equity uh, amongst all the people. Right? He's giving everybody a fair shake. And then later on in his life, after he makes some mistakes, you, you see there's a, a stark difference when his administration is repeated. And that is he's placed Adoram over the head of this new, like, forced labor department. That's instituted by David towards the end of his life. And then Solomon uh, continues this on. And it seems like he even kind of doubles down the, the apartment. I can remember my dad saying something to me when I was a teenager that I've never forgotten. He says, you know, son, when a government establishes a new department, it's not going to stay the same size. It's going to grow and grow and grow. It's not going to get walked back. And it seems like that was true even in the ancient Near Eastern world, not just in the Western world. So that's what happens. This department created by David that wasn't always in place in his, in his kingship, it grows under Solomon, and then Rehoboam uh, sends the head of this department out, and he's murdered. Part of the consequences of foolish tyranny is that eventually the, the people will turn against you, and they will turn murderous even against their own brothers. It's the sad reality of, of tyranny. It doesn't create actual law and order. It doesn't create peace. Grinding people in the dust does not keep them in line and bring them shalom. It drives them away from godliness. And they install a false king, just as God said that they would. And civil war starts to break out amongst these brothers. They're not merely neighboring nations. They're both covenant people, and they've drawn up the battle lines, and they're about to go off to war. And by God's grace, he speaks to and through a prophet, and he comes on to uh, the battlefield and says, everybody go home. And they listen. Wouldn't that be nice if we could just send a minister over to Ukraine right now and just stand in between Ukraine and Russia and say, everybody go home. Enough. And then they'd all listen. 
be amazing. That's what happens here. A prophet of the Lord just says to uh, the side that is super disgruntled over the, uh, the betrayal and the murder of the other side, go home, and they do. It's, I think it's most amazing that Rehoboam actually listens, because he hasn't listened to godly wisdom for the last 16 verses. He probably went home because he looked around at all the guys that are going to fight for him, and they're all leaving. He realized, I have no choice. We don't really know why. But that's probably based on his character as revealed on the, in the, the verses here. That's probably a pretty good guess as to why he would listen to this advice and go home. So in addition to what I mentioned earlier, that God's word comes to pass, and that's something that's good, something that, we, that can give us encouragement even in the midst of this dark story, a second one, a second piece of encouragement, would be that God's word spares people of disaster. This is what you see in verses 22 through 24. The word of the Lord comes to these people, and there's no, there's no bloodshed. How much bloodshed would have, would have been uh, shed that day had he not intervened? Had God not intervened? Who knows? We've, we've seen in the historical books before First Kings what happens when civil war breaks out in Israel and a lot of people perish. And God says, no, we're not going to do that this time. Everybody go home. Lay down your weapons. God's word spares people of disaster. You ever have big decisions to make in life? And you don't really know what to do? Well, God's word can spare you from disaster. It can give you godly counsel. It can form you into a godly person who, even when you don't have the exact right answer, you are the kind of person who is godly, rooted in godly counsel and knowledge and instruction from his word. God's word today can continue to spare us from disaster, just as it does in the day of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. When a man's word leads to death, as it does in these verses, God's word leads to life. Amen. Here's the bottom line about Rehoboam. He has no real care for the people, no real love for them. He's no kind of shepherd. He's not a shepherd of the people like his grandfather David was. His leadership was failed leadership, and the country divided. The man that was supposed to be in the Davidic line, right? he's supposed to be a king uh, for God, on God's behalf, to the people, failed to lead in a godly way. He chose foolishness. He chose death. He chose oppression instead of service. He was told by the, the elder statesman, you'll serve this people, they'll serve you. And instead, he chose oppressive, uh, to be a, an oppressive leader and it led to death in his own camp. So Rehoboam gets rejected and the alternative was in some ways worse. Let's look at Jeroboam in verses 25 through 33. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the peoples who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. 
And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. He instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. So his version of tyranny, he's the king who enslaved his people with false worship. His version of tyranny was to oppress people under a system of false worship. He used blasphemous means to keep people under his thumb. We see this even in our own uh, state, our own city, our own culture today. There are buildings uh, that say church on them. They have steeples, they have crosses, they look like historic church buildings. There's people that stand in pulpits kind of like this, not quite as nice most of the time. Uh, but they stand in them, and they have the title reverend. They, they, they look, they're dressed like a minister of, uh, of, of the gospel. But they're denying the deity of Christ. They're leading people astray. It's all a sham. It kind of looks like a duck, and it kind of walks like a duck, but when you get really close, it's just a giant angry goose. It's a fake. As much as things change, they kind of stay the same. But this is what he's done. He's made priests that look like the real thing, but they're not. He's made altars that, uh, well, they're altars, but they don't look the same. He's given them false gods, given them uh, golden calves to worship. He's given them uh, not one but two different locations to worship in because it's about the consumer, right, and not about the holy God. So he's given them everything that they could possibly need to distract them from what true worship would be. The reason that he does this is because he has godless ambition. His whole desire, he says, he says it right there, it doesn't say it, he thinks it. In verse 26 and 27, he's clinging to his own power. That's why he does this. He thinks to himself, okay, after all these tensions cool off, after these people chill out a little bit, they're going to go to Jerusalem in the tribe of Judah, where they're supposed to be worshiping, and they're going to worship the Lord. And by worshiping the Lord, their hearts will probably be softened and they'll realize, look, we need to all come back together and I just can't have that. So I've got to create something else for them. I've got to create not one but two different places for them to come get their worship fix so that they don't encounter the real, living, and true God and turn their heart back to the rightful king. Because there's, there's no good kings in, in the land at this time. But there's only one rightful one. As messed up and as jacked up as he is, Rehoboam is the rightful king. He's from the line of David. As evil as he is, he is the, the right king for the job, even if he's bad at it. Jeroboam knows he's an imposter, so he has to do whatever he can to hold on to his position. So he sets up shop in Dan and in, and in Bethel, because he knows what we know. The proper worship of God has power. Proper worship of the Lord does a mighty work in the hearts and minds of the covenant people, and he can't have that. So he gives them a new everything, altars, places of worship, priests, and feasts. He even sets up a feast that coincides with the proper feast, the proper day, uh, his his proper special feast that would take place down in Jerusalem. It was all an imitation of the real thing. And the people bought it, hook, line, and sinker. From what we can see, there's no one that stands up and objects and says, okay, hey, just because we have a new king now and we've left behind Rehoboam, that doesn't mean we're abandoning the whole, you know, worship of Yahweh thing. We still, have, we still need to do that. They just go along with it. They've lost their minds. 
They fall right into his trap of being enslaved with false worship. No one objects. Jeroboam has no loyalty to the Lord, and he leads people into false worship. The man that was supposed to be a king, right? He's the man of the people. They've chosen him for themselves, from amongst them. But he also fails. Neither one of these kings fear the Lord. They have a lot in common. They're both tyrants. They both have ambitions that are ungodly. And it all comes back to the chief problem amongst them that they share. They do not fear God. They are both fools. Because the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, is the beginning of wisdom. And Israel needs a king. This text is screaming to us, Israel needs a king that fears God. I'm sure that the truly faithful from among the covenant people that day wished that there was a third option. A king that feared the Lord and loved them. I'm sure that every time, moving forward in the history of Judah and Israel, as they were two kingdoms divided, that the remnant, the faithful, longed for a day that a third option could be found. And church, as we know, the gospel is that there is a third kind of king. One who is from the line of David, who drives us uh, not into the dust, but into his rest. He does not lay burdens upon us, but he leads us away from rebellion and false worship into obedience and true worship. Jesus arrived, we're going through the Gospel of Mark right now, and in chapter uh, 1, he proclaimed that the kingship of God was at hand. He's announcing that the king has stepped onto the scene. The Westminster Standards remind us that Jesus is our mediator, and as our mediator, he is our prophet, priest, and our king. And the larger catechisms remind us that it was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death. And the next question says, it was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature. In other words, uh, one, this king is not going to sink his humanity or our humanity under the wrath of God. He raises it up. Our nature, our knuckle-headed nature of choosing and living under the tyranny of sin can actually be advanced. It could be advanced into wisdom, into godliness, under the leadership of this king. King Jesus is the king who saves mankind from their sin. He's the opposite of the two kings in this text. First, he's wise. In Matthew 13, when he's teaching in his, the town that he was raised in, in Nazareth, they marveled at his wisdom. They wondered, where could you possibly find wisdom like this? Luke 2, we find out that even from the time he was a small uh, child, he was growing, actively growing in wisdom. And Paul refers to him, that seems, uh, to, he seems to refer to Jesus as wisdom incarnate in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is a wise king who doesn't abandon, uh, doesn't abandon wisdom for foolishness in order to subdue his people and oppress them. But he's also tender. What does he say in Matthew uh, 11, verses 28 through 30? He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy, uh, laden, and I will give you rest. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. That doesn't sound like Rehoboam or Jeroboam at all. This is a tender king. This is a king who doesn't want to drive us into the dust. He wants to unburden us. There's still a yoke for us under King Jesus. He doesn't say there's no yoke at all here. But he says it's easy. His burden is light. He's also meek. 
He looks to the interests of others. Right? Paul exhorts us in Philippians 2. There was a, a conflict amongst the church there at, at Philippi. There was two people that were uh, not considering the interests of others. They weren't agreeing in the Lord. They were fighting, it seems, for their own way. And he says, consider uh, Jesus. Have his mind in your midst. Don't just look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. Jesus is meek. He had the power to grab a hold and take so much. He could have pursued and obtained vain or foolish ambitions, but he chose not to, unlike Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And Jesus is faithful in worship. According to Luke uh, chapter 4, he's being uh, tempted by Satan. Satan's like, look, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And he never turns away from the Father. Furthermore, he leads us to the Father. He explains in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He's the sole highway to get the covenant people to the Father. The whole book of Hebrews is basically yelling at us, Jesus is better and greater. You get to enter this great uh, realized form of worship because of Jesus, because of his blood. The shadows have passed away. The reality, Christ has come. He's faithful in worship. Philippians 2 says that God exalt, exalted Jesus and that one day everyone will bow, every knee will bow to Jesus Christ our Lord. This wise, tender, meek, and faithful man called the Christ was exalted, lifted up as our ruler by God and not man. Aren't you glad that we didn't have a choice in the matter? Aren't you glad that we didn't get to choose whether or not to elect Jesus as the head of the church? It was taken completely out of our hands. Father gave him that position, gave him that title. The proposition this evening is simple. Since Jesus is the kind of king that we need, we should wholeheartedly embrace his kingship. There is a third option. We don't have to choose the Rehoboams and the Jeroboams of this life. We can choose Christ. We can follow him. How do we wholeheartedly embrace his kingship? Well, uh, drawing off of the wisdom of the Westminster Larger Catechism, I want to just kind of reverse engineer some answers to that question from what they, uh, the divines uh, wisely said about him executing the office of king. So if you hate these applications, take it up with the divines, okay? You can just talk to them about it if you have any grievances. So how do we embrace wholeheartedly the kingship of Jesus? Well, when he calls, we answer. When he gives us our marching orders, when he gives us instructions, we answer. Secondly, we submit to his governance, which is extended through his laws and his officers. Third, we should obey his commands with joy. Not with a begrudging heart, but with joy. Fourth, we should trust that he is defending and restraining your enemies. Do not seek to be your own avenger. That may get harder and harder in the days to come. To not seek to be your own avenger. And fifth, trust his ordering of all things for his own glory. Even the hard stuff. It's easy to submit to the will of Christ, to submit to his ordering of all things when things are, are coming up all sevens for you, isn't it? When everything's bouncing your way, it's easy. It's easy to trust his ordering of all things. We ought to do so even when it's hard. Our king is wise, he's tender, he's meek, and he's faithful. And by his grace, we can respond in faith to his kingship and embrace it wholeheartedly with joy and great delight. Not out of begrudging submission, but true gladness wrought in our hearts by the word and spirit of Christ. Let the hearer 
understand. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Christ, our King, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we offer our thanks. Thanks that you have blessed us with King Jesus. We thank you that you have not left us to trust in Jeroboam's and Rehoboam's. We thank you that the king that we need is the king that you have provided in your son. So may we trust in him more fully. May we increase in our faith and receive more of your grace so that we might more wholeheartedly embrace Jesus as our king. For your name's sake. Amen.